What we're dealing with here is a total lack of respect for the law. Tune in to Done By Law. An informal and irreverent look at the law. Critical insights and analysis from diverse community perspectives. Done by law, 6 p.m. Tuesdays. Good evening and welcome to Done by Law on 3CR. Welcome to those listening via 3cr.org.au and 3CR Digital. It's 6 p.m. and you're here with Gemma and Indra. We're broadcasting tonight from the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and we acknowledge their ongoing struggle for recognition and that sovereignty was never ceded. Well, uh, if you're listening from Victoria, it's back into lockdown as we try to break the, I think now, fourth wave of COVID. But while it's a sombre time for many of us huddling at home, it's been a pretty extraordinary week or so for climate litigation in Australia. So tonight, we're focusing on two cases which were handed down in the last few days. The first was brought by the Australian Conservation Foundation, or ACF, against the Commonwealth Environment Minister in relation to the Adani long-running and controversial Carmichael mine project. And it's a decision which might hold important consequences for future coal mine construction, expansion and coal seam gas planning in future. The second is a class action brought by several Australian children against the Federal Minister for the Environment, Susan Lay, which alleged the Minister had breached a novel duty of care because of her failure to address the issue of climate change, which would ultimately cause them harm. But first, let's tuck into the Adani decision. On Tuesday of last week, the 25th of May, the Federal Court denied Adani access to billions of litres of water for its Carmichael mine. By way of background, the case was brought by the Australian Conservation Foundation against the Commonwealth Government. The ACF have challenged the government's approval of the Adani North Galilee water scheme that would pump water, um, 12.5 billion litres of water, sorry, per year from Queensland's Sutter River into the Carmichael mine. Now, broadly, the main basis of ACF's challenge was that the government did not apply what's called the water trigger in its approval of the scheme. And very briefly, the water trigger is a rigorous assessment process for large coal mine and coal seam gas projects that assesses the impacts of those um, of that project on water systems. The government decided that the water trigger didn't apply to the Adani scheme because it itself isn't a coal mining project and that it doesn't involve actually extracting coal from a mine. Sound odd? Well, the federal court agrees and has now said that the reasoning was an error and they've sent the case back to the government who must decide whether to apply the water trigger to the scheme. This will be the third time the government has had to reconsider its decision on the scheme. And on the face of it, it would seem like a pretty big blow to the Adani Carmichael mine. But Adani have remained steadfast and have stated publicly that the decision will not impact construction. Time will tell. So tonight, to help us unpack the case, we'll be joined by the General Legal Counsel for the Australian Conservation Foundation, Adam Beeson. Adam Beeson is General Counsel at the Australian Conservation Foundation, uh, and he's a lawyer that's worked in the environment and planning law for over 15 years in the community, government and private sectors. Um, Adam, thanks so much for making time to speak with us this evening. That's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. 
No worries. Um, so before we kind of get into the nitty gritty, I guess, of the legal arguments, um, I suspect that a lot of people who've had the ability to vote in the past few years will be familiar with the name Adani uh, and the long running saga to prevent the mine being built in, up in Queensland. But can you tell us a bit more about where this case sits, I guess, in the context of that dispute, given, given that mine was, for my recollection, approved? Is this an effort to show that the approval made was unlawful in the first place or where are we at? You're quite right. The, the mine itself and the rail line um, associated with it in part was approved many years ago. And in fact, uh, the Australian Conservation Foundation did challenge that approval uh, in the federal court and then in the full court um, unsuccessfully. So that approval is in place. This recent decision of the federal court concerns a part of the mine uh, operation, if you like, um, separate to that original approval. So subsequent to the original approval, Adani proposed a project called the North Galilee Water Scheme to provide 12.5 gigalitres of water uh, to the mine. It's outside the mine site. It uses water from the Sutter River, which would then be piped south to the rail corridor and then into the pipeline, which is running along the rail corridor. The North Galilee Water Scheme was referred in the usual way under the national environmental law, as the original approval was. And at the point at which the minister decided what elements of the national environmental law applied was where this case took off, if you like. Um, the Australian Conservation Foundation had said to the minister in, in the public consultation process that the water trigger should apply to this. That is the water trigger under the national environmental law, which concerns coal mining and coal seam gas projects. Uh, however, the minister disagreed and said that the water trigger did not apply. And it was that decision that the Australian Conservation Foundation has now successfully challenged. What that means is that that issue will now have to be considered uh, as part of the assessment process under the National Environmental Law. So there is no approval for this water scheme at the moment. I see. Okay. So one of the things that that we found a bit um, confusing, I guess, trying to get our heads around this case was how it was that the government tried to argue that the Adani water scheme wasn't a coal mining project. Is there some um, uh, detail that we're missing there? Like how, how, how is it that they decided that that was, the, that that was what it wasn't? <laughs> yeah, look, trying to be fair to, to the minister, I think it is counterintuitive, um, the position that the government adopted. Um, yeah. But doing the best I can to accurately portray their position, they said, or the, the department said, uh, the minister by the department said that because the North Galilee water scheme was being developed by a separate corporate entity, so still within the Adani umbrella, but not the same entity as is developing the mine, um, because there was separate financial decisions um, and separate approvals under state and local government regulatory regimes, um, the minister determined that it was 
not a part of a large coal mining activity, large coal mining activity. And that's the expression in the national environmental law. I see. All I can really do is tell you what the minister said in the reasons that um, were provided to the Australian Conservation Foundation prior to us commencing the case. But I think I agree with you that um, it, it is difficult to understand how you could argue that given that the water is clearly intended for the Adani's Carmichael coal mine. And I guess, does the decision also, therefore, I guess, stand as good law to say that the minister can't um, adjust the size of the of the of her decision or of their decision um, to say, well, I'm just looking at the very specifics of this without looking at the broader context and understanding that what we're looking at might have been a decision for this particular, you know, the the Galway, um water um, system, but that it is in broader context part of the mine itself. Does that stand as one of the things that the case said, or is that is that sort of stepping outside of what the, the, the court was willing to say? No, I think that's right. I think I'd probably say two things about that. One is that it's a well-established legal proposition um, in environmental law that proponents ought not split up their projects and have individual component parts separately assessed. Obviously, the situation is different where there is an existing project and then you want to do an additional piece. Just suppose is how Adani would paint this picture and the minister. Um, what the court said in this case is where the action, and so in this case, the building of this water scheme to supply water to the mine, uh, is so closely associated with the mining of coal as to be integral to it, and I'm quoting her on there, um, then it will um, require assessment under the water trigger. So the new law, if you like, here is that um, close association integral test. Um, you, as you were saying before, kind of common sense point of view, we'd say, well, a water system to supply water to the mine must be part of that activity um, and our honours agree with that and uh, you can imagine situations where activities related to the coal mining is so far outside of it that it wouldn't be integral or closely associated with so this definitely establishes uh, a precedent uh, and law in terms of how close or how related an act one activity needs to be with another for the water trigger to apply and of course, the water trigger only applies to coal, large coal mining activities and coal seam gas. Interesting. And so is it precedent making also, I guess, in the sense that for other large scale coal mining projects or coal seam gas projects, um, do those projects also have a similar reliance on water from some, okay, I'm coming from the, from the point of view of somebody that obviously doesn't understand the intricacies of coal mining. Is the requirement of large volumes of water something that is a, a, a pretty common theme across these kind of large coal mining uh, projects? And is that something that could be used in future cases as well, therefore? Yeah, my understanding is coal mining uses vast amounts of water. Um, mm. I'm not a mining engineer, but from material written by people who should know these things, um, that's my understanding. Um, so, this decision will apply to future projects. That's 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 right. 
Um, and the question will be, you know, if it will only really be relevant where a project is split up um, in the way that's happened here. Um, something's proposed later or in two parallel parts. Um, it's possible that existing water supplies to existing activities, coal mining and coal seam gas, that haven't received approval under the National Environmental Law um, should have in accordance with this decision. Each of those would have to be looked at on their merit. Yeah, yeah, okay. Um, when we say national environmental laws, Adam, is there a particular act that was important in this case? Yeah, when I say that, it's it's shorthand for the Environment Protection the Biodiversity Conservation Act of yeah. 1999. Um, yeah, so no, no, that, I'm, that was the centre of this decision. I see. I'm, I'm smiling because part of the episode that we're doing for, um, for tonight is also um, looking at the class action decision in Sharma uh, that also came down this week. So it's been a, a really exciting week for your area of law, obviously. And this act and the ministers obviously had a bit of a pummeling <laughs> um, on, on both counts. Um, is this the, in, in terms of the, 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 the legislation that you use um, and other advocates in the space, um, is this the, the kind of seminal act that that really sets out what the federal minister can and can't do and what her obligations are in terms of environmental protection? Yeah, that's right. The, the We call it for shorthand as well, the EPBC Act. Um, yeah. I understand it, why. <laughs> yeah, it, it brought together uh, a range of legislation um, into one, one act um, and... One of the critical parts of what the EPBC Act covers is the assessment and approval of projects, where those projects will impact on another term from the Act, matters of national environmental significance. So a good example of that uh, is World Heritage Properties, um, matters of national environmental significance. So if, a, if somebody wants to take an action that will have a significant impact on the values of a World Heritage Property, uh, then they'll need to refer their project and the minister, the the act sets out a process for assessment and then the minister makes an approval or refusal decision under that act. So in the, in the Adani case that ACF has just succeeded in, um, the matter of national environmental significance is water resources. So um, what we were saying even before the minister made her decision that we've now successfully um, sort of view of, uh, we were saying that water resources in this context need to be assessed in terms of the impact of this 12.5 uh, gigalitre take per annum um, on them. I see. Okay. Um, I guess it's interesting because the, the Act has obviously been around since 1999. Um, in terms of, of successful environmental litigation, um, that's been brought before, has it routinely used this act or is this something that, you know, how, how is it that we've come up with sort of precedent making law from an act that's been around for, you know, close to 25, 30 years? Well, that's a good question. <laughs> the water trigger is, um, was not part of the act when it was originally created. It's a I relatively think. new invention. And in fact, uh, it came in 
um, around the time the original Michael Mine approval um, was being assessed. So that's probably the answer to your question. Yeah. Um, I suppose also that precedent is often created, or is always created, due to the particular facts of the case. So until those facts arise, a given opportunity for uh, a piece of the legislation to be tested, uh, precedent might not be set. Yeah, true, true. Well, it's it's obviously a really um, exciting outcome, Adam, and I know that many of our listeners have um, the the Adani project uh, with um, horror, but also with hope, and it's fantastic to have seen a really important victory uh, to your legal team. So thank you so much for your work in this space, uh, and we congratulate you, and, and thanks again for speaking with us this evening. Thanks, Gemma. It's been a pleasure. Fitzroy Legal Service has launched a free information and advice phone service for people who have been stopped, questioned, fined or charged for breaching the new COVID-19 restrictions. Have you been fined or charged under the new laws or stopped and questioned by police for being outside? Call 0434 136 501. Weekdays between 9am and 5pm. That's 0434 136 501. Or head to fitzroy-legal.org.au for more information. You can also report incidents at covidpolicing.org.au. Fitzroy Legal Service is a 3CR supporter. And you're back on 3CR, 8.55am. Tonight we're discussing two recent environmental cases which have set exciting precedents for strategic litigation in the climate action space. So um, now we're going to talk about the case that was um, called Sharma and the Minister for the Environment. So this second Mm. case was brought by a group of Australian children So we've contacted the legal team behind the action, but were unable to speak ahead of the broadcast date. Um, We hope to invite them onto the show in the future so we can discuss the case and their proposed next steps in the coming weeks. Um, But for now, we thought we'd just do a brief introduction into the case and talk about some of the, the legal issues that were brought up. That's right. We could really, we could really kind of do an episode over several, um, several weeks, I reckon, on this case, because there's so much in it. Um, but just for those that haven't had a chance to get across the, the, the case as much yet, essentially um, uh, Vickery Coal is a coal mining company that had already gained approval for the development of a new coal mine in New South Wales. Um, and although the development hadn't strictly begun, in 2016 the company wanted to expand and extend that project further. Um, that expansion would mean, though, that the the total coal extraction from the mine site would increase by 135 million tonnes to 168 million tonnes, which, when combusted, would produce over 100 million tonnes of CO2. This is the point where the Minister for the Environment comes in, where, as per Section 68 of that very long um, act, the Environmental Protection and Biodiversity Conservation Act, um, the Minister had to decide whether the expansion of the mine... Uh, should be approved. 
Yeah, so um, basically those children, um, there were eight of them, brought the action against the minister in relation to that decision that was needing to be made um, on the expansion. And so the the group of um, kids who brought the action actually brought it on behalf of all Australian children and teenagers, um, alleging that they owed all Australian children and teenagers um, a duty of care. So the duty of care related to the mental and physical injury, including ill health and or death, um, as well as economic um, and property loss that could result um, from global warming uh, caused by CO2 emissions. So they alleged that this harm would likely occur at the end of the century um, when global average surface temperatures are forecast to be significant, significantly higher. So this is some pretty scary stuff. Mm. Yeah. And they put on an expert report, didn't they, to, to sort of outline and I guess give the evidence that they were seeking the court to draw about how significant that those risks are. Yeah, the judgment goes into like quite a quite a lot of detail about sort of different various outcomes that will occur depending on how much the, the temperatures rise and, and yeah, the judgment is, is really interesting. If you're interested in sort of reading about those details, it, it, it's very informative and thorough. But yes, so um, I guess firstly, we'll just sort of debrief a little bit about the, the duty of care element that the children yeah. alleged the minister owed them. Yeah, what did they say about the duty of care? Because that's a pretty... Um, significant um, argument for the plaintiffs to put. Yeah, it is. And it's not something that's it's pretty sort of never really been done before. So yeah. I guess they sort of relied on, there was again that, that act and section 130 is relates to the timing of a decision on any approval. Um, and it includes a requirement to act within reasonable care, not, not to cause harm. What I found interesting about that section was that it the, the statute itself talks about how the time that what the minister has to consider in terms of the decision on any approval and what the mm. plaintiffs I think seemed to be making out was that in making that decision there was a general uh, requirement of the minister uh, to not cause harm but the, the statute itself doesn't say that there's a duty of care on the minister or that the, the considerations that the minister has to make so they were putting a pretty um, creative and novel argument by reading that into the statute or reading what the minister's role was within that statute, I reckon, weren't they? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And so um, I guess they related that and used like a number of salient features to, to support the, the finding that there would be a duty of care. Um, so some of those kind of the key ones, I guess, related to... The fact that the minister sort of had a lot of control and had the control to avoid that the nature of that that harm. Um, there was also an element mm. of vulnerability of the children, and they also looked at the reasonable foreseeability and nature of the harm, which is also an interesting one because I think that's something that's developed a lot over time in terms of how climate change is is looked at as whether it is sort of foreseeable or or you know is a harm that is realistic you know if if you look mm. back over time it's it's something that's developed quite recently yeah yeah i think that's uh, that that control that i think that control um and the reasonable foreseeability argument is is 
is where a lot of the um, conflict kind of arose between uh, what the children were, were putting, or I shouldn't say the children, sorry, the plaintiffs had put and how the government responded. And I'll come to that in a moment because basically the other things the plaintiffs were seeking was, was an injunction against the minister. So based on that duty of care, if the court was to find that the duty existed, um, then the plaintiffs sought um, uh, an injunction to stop the expansion occurring. Um, now, in response, the, the government, um, you know, wasn't denying um, the, a lot of the evidence that was put by the plaintiffs about the climate effects that, would, that were, was going to occur. So they, they didn't try and quibble hugely with um, the, I, I suppose, the, the nature of what people are going to experience and those children are going to experience, but they did push back on the extent to which those effects were causally linked to the extension project. And traditionally, this is where climate litigation has really struggled because how can you outline that it's one particular project that is going to have that causal link to the harm that is experienced when the harm that might be experienced from the heating of the climate um, or the heating of the planet rather is, is a cumulative kind of effect over potentially decades um, of neglect, uh, of policy neglect. And on that, in, in, in that regard, they obviously denied that the minister herself owed a duty of care um, and outlined uh, the reasons for that was that indeterminate liability, sort of extending what I was explaining before, um, incoherence and other factors, such as the fact that, um, you know, the, the approval of the plan, just because the minister might have approved the plan, doesn't implicitly mean the ex extension project would even proceed. So to have found a duty, um, even though it doesn't, doesn't, result in the actual production of the of of the co2 would be a would be a mistake so they were the two sides that were sort of put to the court and what did the um court find indra so basically um in what i guess we could find out to be somewhat of a win was that the 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 judgment um found in favor of the plaintiffs in terms of um a duty of care existing between the plaintiffs and the minister, which is great, basically because of what you were saying about the incoherence and like the decision and it being a bit too far removed um, in terms of the harm, the injunction was not was not granted. Does that does that form a bit of a pyrrhic victory? Do you think for the plaintiffs, or or does it give them a, a basis that they can say, great, well now that we've, the court has established there is a duty that exists, there would be circumstances where you know, another injunction or another project might fall foul enough that the court would intervene. Yeah, well, I think that was what was yeah. interesting about the judgment, the fact that the minister hadn't actually yet made a decision on whether to approve or not. So that was another um, key element in not granting the injunction because, yeah, that sort of that, that element of breach wasn't really there yet. But it was interesting because I think that there were two kind of key elements that, that came out of it and um, the decision not to... The, grant the injunction and one of them was this sort of reiterating of the fact that the plaintiffs now do have a right to seek um, an injunction in the future if they wanted to so now that that duty of care has been established um, there there is a possibility for them to do that if if that duty is breached in the future in relation to, to environmental things which I think is really interesting um, and I think another element that was quite interesting was that there seemed to be sort of some 
suggestion that the minister would, in making their decision um, in terms of whether to approve or not approve, um, they would take into consideration the fact that there is a duty of care and uh. sort of some of the information that came out through the judgment and through through the case, like just, just in terms of, you know, you were saying about all that information that they sort of gathered and collected to support the harm that's caused by CO2 emissions and, and the extent of that harm. Interesting. So I guess, yeah, what, what, what this case does is potentially set up future litigation to be able to rely on the existence of a duty. But I guess there's, you know, it's interesting to think about, well, does this, does this finding still require a breach to have been made to be able to be fully for the power to be fully mm. used and of course that's a bit of a problem because the whole point of these yeah. cases is to prevent harm occurring i'm really looking forward to getting an opportunity to be able to discuss that with them you know and get their their Absolutely. opinions and awesome um well i reckon that's probably about time for us um this evening um, thanks again for tuning in, everybody. You've been listening to Done By Law on 8.55am at 3CR. Uh, a quick shout out that we're, of course, in the middle of Radiothon right now. So um, please dig deep and uh, give as generously as you possibly can. It's a really important time for uh, community radio, especially in the times of COVID. We need to be making sure that we're getting out important political messages and um, uh, rigorous interviews like we've obviously done this evening. So thanks once again, and we'll see you next Tuesday evening. I'm Gemma, and this is Indra on Done By Law.